0: Uh, Tonight, um, we're beginning uh, a series of studies. Uh, Going from Isaiah chapter 1 through chapter 66 is a little tedious. Um, So I have uh, broken this up actually, and I preached or I I did a series of Bible studies several years back on the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Those are available on sermon audio. Um, And today, I'd like to start at um, chapter 40. Um, And there's an abrupt switch Um, in Isaiah chapter 40. uh, He is switching. If you remember, this struck me as I was studying today. A few months ago, I was speaking about the Tower of Babel uh, in Genesis chapter 11 which switches abruptly to Abraham in chapter 12. Um, And I made the point that Babel is building one kind of a kingdom, a kingdom with brick and mortar, and Babel became a type. It was actually in the location where Babylon would be built in the future. And Babylon and Babel became a type of the city of man, as Augustine called it, a city that's built by brick and mortar and oppression and theft and vanity and power and money and control and the things of this earth. And in contrast to that is the kingdom that's built because God has made a promise. Uh, God is building a city. Abraham sought a city whose builder and maker was God, if you remember how the writer of Hebrews puts it. And here in Isaiah, we have this same kind of contrast. The problem in Isaiah, before I read the text, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 in, in a minute, but I want to give you some background. The problem that Isaiah is continually addressing is that the kings of Judah... The southern kingdom are continually looking to make alliances with the nations around them, uh, worshiping and sacrificing the gods of power, the gods of the nations around them, and seeking to protect themselves by making alliances with the nations. For those who aren't familiar with the Old Testament uh, geography, the nation of Israel by this time is split into two. There's the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. In the southern kingdom, the line of David is continuing. All the kings in the southern kingdom are from the line of David. God made a promise to David that his seed would reign forever and ever. Messiah was going to come through the line of David. So Judah had a special place in the economy of God's redemption. Uh, Judah had the care and providence of God and also the full-on attack of the Satan, of Satan in Genesis chapter 3, where the, the seed of the serpent is seeking to crush the woman's seed. There's that enmity that is there. This is continuing on. Um, and if you read through the history of the kings of Judah, you see the continual attacks of Satan, drawing them to idolatry, drawing them to alliances. The application of this problem today is not to any nation. The United States is not Israel. Um, There's nothing wrong with making alliances and treaties and that sort of thing. That's not the application. It's an idea of faith. One of the kings of Judah was Ahaz. And Ahaz has a central figure in the prophecies of Isaiah. Um, Ahaz... Uh, is threatened by the two kingdoms just north of him. There's the kingdom of Israel, who's a longtime enemy of the kingdom of Judah. And Israel has made an alliance with the Assyrians, who are just north of Israel. Uh, And their alliance is to destroy the kings of Judah, to wipe them out completely, and to establish this empire um, uh, where they can protect themselves against Assyria, which is getting more and more powerful. Judah is afraid of that. Ahaz is afraid of that. But instead of turning to the Lord, he turns to Assyria to make a treaty with Assyria. And Isaiah goes to him. God sends Isaiah to Ahaz and says, don't do this. It's not going to stand. This conspiracy between the northern kingdoms is not going to thwart my plans. The king is going to still come. I will still bring salvation through your line. This There's no need for you to make treaties with the gods of the nations and with the other nations of the world. You are my people and I will protect you. And then God graciously offers Ahaz a sign. He says, ask a sign so we can establish your faith here. If you believe it, you will be established. If you don't believe it, you'll be scattered. And Ahaz says, I'm not going to request a sign, if you remember that call. And Isaiah says, God is dead done with you, speaking to Ahaz. And then he turns to the house of Judah, all the ruling class, and he gives the house of Judah a promise. He says, the Lord will give you all a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. See, God, once again, here's Abraham and Babel, being contrasted. There's the kingdom that God is going to build that will be brought uh, in God's time and in God's way. He will crush the head of the serpent. He will plunder the kingdom and he will build his city. And then contrasted to that is the kingdom of Babylon, symbolized by Ahaz getting sucked into the kingdom of Babylon. Uh, the Assyrians, the Syrians, the Aramaeans, the, uh, all the nations of the world that are warring against this tiny tribe of Judah. Judah gradually more and more gets sucked into the thinking of Babylon. That salvation and the kingdom of God are going to come through power and strength and money. And if only we had the right coalitions, if only we had the right treaties, if only we had enough money, if only we had enough power, then we can bring about the kingdom of God. This is the context that Isaiah is sent in. And he does these prophecies and he denounces judgment. The heart of it is if Israel, if Judah is determined to behave As if they're just like every other nation, God will treat them like every other nation. It means something to be the people of God. God first revealed himself to the nation of Israel in Egypt. And he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And Israel for centuries kept saying, we don't want to be your people. We want to build golden calves. We want to be treated just like every other nation. We want to have a king just like all the other nations. Uh, The book of Judges. We want to worship the idols of the other nations. We want to build altars of the other nations. We want gods that we can control just like all the other nations. And there's the history of Israel and Judah in a nutshell. By the time Isaiah comes along, God is done with the northern kingdom. Isaiah lives during the destruction of the northern kingdom by Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, or, or Sennacherib. Sennacherib was the one that, the general that came down and conquered Israel and Samaria and almost destroyed Jerusalem. Isaiah lives at that time, and he sees in the future, by the time we get to chapter 39 of Isaiah, Isaiah is looking 100 years in the future, where Babylon now is going to come in, going to conquer Assyria and also conquer Judah. And he's going to take Jerusalem captive. And Jerusalem is going to be scattered. Israel is going, Judah is going to have a hundred years of decline. And then Babylon is going to come. And then Babylon is going to take Judah into captivity and scatter them throughout the world. And then 70 years after that, Isaiah sees their return. This is all seen 150, 170 years in advance where Isaiah is seeing this prophecy fulfilled. He's looking into the future. And that's where we are when we get to chapter 40. It's a troubled church in exile that Isaiah is seeing in the future. And so with that in mind, let's look at first, the first 11 verses of chapter 40. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, And every mountain and hill brought low; The crooked places shall be made straight. The rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. Because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are as grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And that's we have the introduction to this last part of the book of Isaiah. Um, the first thing I would like to notice, uh, Hosea, the prophet Hosea, we spent some time going through Hosea just a year or so ago. Um, he's a contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea's the theme of Hosea is God is saying to his people at the same time with the exile coming, you are no longer my people and I will no longer be your God uh, that's the theme of the book of Hosea and and God is giving his divorce decree to Hosea and then yet at the same time he's promising to allure them and speak comfortably to them and draw them back in Here, Isaiah is seeing in the future. I've heard it said that sometimes prophecy, this is a good example, sometimes prophecy is like looking at a mountain range. You can't know which mountain is closer to you until you get up to the mountain. Isaiah is seeing the whole thing. Immediately, the first thing that he's seeing is the return of the exiles. In their future exile, they're going to return after 70 years. But The language he's using is so much bigger and so much more glorious than anything that happened after the exile. The kingdom of God didn't come in when Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the temple, but the glory of God didn't fill it. They mourned because they didn't see the glory of God. Isaiah is looking at another age, another time. It's the time that Peter actually saw face to face. When Peter said, if I can find this passage, First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says to the church, not only the Jews that are still scattered abroad, but also to the Gentiles, all who believe in Christ, he says this to them, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So I want to tie this together. Isaiah is looking into the future. There's going to be some grace shown when Israel is brought back to rebuild the temple. But that covenant has still been broken. God said in Hosea, you are not my people and I will not be your God. It wasn't until Christ came that the glory of the Lord was revealed, there's another theme we'll look at, and the the people of God were restored and called, you are now, you who were once called not a people are now the people of God, you are my people. And so in this very first verse, the comfort that God is speaking to his people are, speak comfort to my people, saith your God, comfort you, my people, says your God. Isn't that a beautiful thing where God is promising this restoration of the covenant fellowship that he has with his people? It was this relationship with his people that brings about the salvation of the world. Christ eventually comes into the world and he is the true people of God. And as this expands throughout the New Testament, we see at the very end of the book of Revelation, the tabernacle of God is with men, it descends, it fills the whole earth, and the voice says, I am your God, and you are my people, and this is the consummation of all things. So Isaiah is looking forward in these next 26 chapters, not only to the return from exile after 70 years, but also, and even more so, the redemption of the whole world. First, Christ, the suffering servant coming in, paying double for all the sins, and then at the very end, the resurrection of the dead and the great kingdom of God restored in chapters 65 and 66. So that's an overview of where we're going to be going here. As we look at this first verse, comfort, speak comfort to my people. He says in verse two, speak comfortably to Jerusalem. Uh, Literally in the Hebrew, it says, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. It's the same language that he uses in Hosea when he talks about alluring them. Therefore, he will allure them and draw them in and speak comfortably to them. It's To use uh, Hosea's phrase, it's whispering sweet nothings in the ear. Speak seductively to her. It's the young man and the young woman trying to, the young man is trying to woo the woman into a relationship. This is how the gospel is presented in Isaiah and the prophets. It's not the thundering from Mount Zion. It's the comforting alluring of God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I think this is sometimes forgotten in our proclamations. We sometimes will uh, tell people everything that's wrong with them and think that that's the proclamation of the gospel instead of alluring people with the words of comfort. Behold your God, he's coming. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He is calling for you, goodwill towards men, for God so loved the world. All those echoes of the gospel are so beautiful. Another recurring theme throughout these 11 verses is the um, word that's translated sometimes voice and sometimes, if it's in verb form, to call out. The word translated voice is the noun form of the word to call and the word translated cry is the verb form of the word to call. So the voice crying of the wilderness is the calling one calling in the wilderness, the crier crying. Uh, to use this play on words, Hebrew is full of this stuff, and it emphasizes this crying out, these words of comfort, the shouting, a persistent shouting comfort and peace to people, um, that their, their iniquity is finished, that atonement has been made, it's all been pardoned, and now they're being called home. With that being said, We need to look at the messages that these voices give. There are three messages that these voices are calling. The first one we find in verse 3. It's an anonymous voice. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. From Isaiah's perspective, this voice is anonymous. Um, We don't know who this voice is. But here's what the voice is shouting. Prepare the way of the Lord. Notice in your English Bible, I'm reading out of the New King James, and it follows the King James, the NASV is the same, Uh, the ESV is the same. The word Lord there is all in capital letters. What that means is it's a translation of the Hebrew word Jehovah or Yahweh. It's the personal name of the covenant God, the triune God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that appeared and gave his name to Moses at the burning bush and revealed himself in the book of Exodus. Jehovah, Yahweh, is only used for the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. It's never used for anyone else. The word God... Um, Elohim, or El, is sometimes used for false gods, sometimes used for angels, sometimes used for even men in the book of Psalms. Elohim uh, is a generic name for gods. Lord, Jehovah, is not a generic name for God. It only refers to the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. It's never given to anyone else. When you see Lord in smaller case letters, that's simply the equivalent of Sir or Master. Um, in the Hebrew. But here, and the reason that I'm pointing this out is because Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, he says the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and he says John the Baptist is this voice crying in the wilderness, saying, prepare the way of Jehovah, and who comes? Jesus Christ. A very clear proclamation that Jesus Christ is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the one who met with Moses at the burning bush. He is the eternal word of God, Jehovah himself. In Isaiah's day, this voice is anonymous. It's someone calling out. It's the proclamation. It's the prophet proclaiming this word, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming in victory. The exiles will be returned. The immediate, as I said, the immediate uh, application is the return from the exile. And when he talks about every. Uh, the highway being made straight, the valleys being lifted up, the mountains being lowered. He's simply saying every obstacle is going to be removed. It's going to be impossible when you're in exile in Babylon for you to believe that the day is going to come when you're going back home. In fact, many people in Babylon didn't believe it. They didn't go back home. The obstacles were too great. But there were those that remembered Isaiah's message. They saw this. And they believed it. Unlike Ahaz, who didn't believe the promise and he wasn't established, the exiles, they believed it. Think about that for a moment. This is the theme of the latter part of, of Isaiah. This is why God is going to spend so much time in the next 10 chapters, giving all of his attributes, contrasting his power with the power of idols. Because the only way we can believe these promises of God is if we know who God is. Because as we all know, when we hit those dark Places When we have our own exiles, when everything else is piling all around us, when everything in the future is dark, it is so hard to believe that God is coming in triumph. And he's going to keep every single promise that he has ever made. And this is why we talk about who God is, because the things that are impossible for men aren't impossible for God. God is the creator of heaven and earth. More on this next time when we get to the last half of this chapter. So the exiles are going to return. But look at verse number five. Now it's as if Isaiah is jumping ahead centuries. And he's saying, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. This when Israel goes into exile, one of the greatest griefs that they had was hearing about the temple being completely destroyed. Ezekiel saw it. He lived later. He lived during the time of the exile. He learned during he lived during the time of the destruction of the temple, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, teared it apart stone by stone. Before that happened, Ezekiel saw the vision of the chariot, where the glory of God That pillar of cloud and pillar of fire that filled the tabernacle, that filled the temple of Solomon, where God's presence dwelt with his people. Ezekiel saw that lift up and go away. God's presence was no longer in the temple the glory of the Lord had departed. Just like it had in the days of the judges when uh, Eli's uh, daughter-in-law gives birth after she finds out that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured. The presence of God is gone. She she gives birth and names the boy Ichabod, which means no more glory. The exile is the ultimate Ichabod. God's presence is gone. But do you remember what I said earlier, the promise made to Ahaz? Ahaz. The Lord will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The presence of God is going to return. The glory of God is going to return. But it's not going to be the way that they imagine it's going to be. It's not going to be that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire filling the temple anymore. It's going to be a baby in a manger. And so the next time the glory of the Lord is seen is when the angels announce to the shepherds that a virgin has conceived and born a son. You remember that the glory of the Lord shone round about them. All of these Christmas songs that we're going to be singing over the next month has such incredibly deep meaning where the fulfillment of all these prophecies are taking place. God's presence is with his people again. Matthew begins that way. The gospel begins that way. Mark begins that way. Mark begins with the voice calling in the wilderness. Matthew begins with the genealogy from Abraham going on down and ending in Jesus Christ. And then the glory of the Lord is seen in Luke. And the virgin conceives in Matthew and gives birth to a son. And they call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And Matthew says this fulfills the prophecy. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and so forth. So the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is taking place gradually in the proclamation of the gospel, the voices crying out throughout the world. And eventually all flesh will see it when that visible glory appears, the Son of Man descending in clouds of glory. Uh, on the last day when all flesh shall see it together and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn. So there's the first message from the voice crying out. The second message from the voice is verse number six. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? Here's the contrast between the flesh and the spirit, the flesh and the word of the Lord. All flesh is as grass. When the breath of the Lord Uh, and I've said this before, just a reminder, breath, wind, and spirit in Hebrew are all the same word. So this could be translated the spirit of the Lord. When it's breathed out upon flesh, the flesh is gone. When you're in exile in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar seems huge. Nebuchadnezzar, the glory there is absolutely immense. I, um, One movie where this really sticks out in my head is the um, movie The 300 uh, about Xerxes uh, fighting against Sparta. And the one scene that stamps, that absolutely just comes in my I don't know how accurate it is, but it really speaks of this, is when Xerxes comes into the battle. He's being carried by the slaves. And the glory, the earthly glory of Xerxes is very clear in this movie. Here is someone you do not mess with. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He built those those hanging gardens, the ancient wonders of the world. When you see Nebuchadnezzar, this is a guy you don't mess with. He is absolutely invincible, uncrushable. No one stands a chance against him. Um, If you were there at the time, the glory of the White House would fade in comparison. This man held absolute power over the lives of millions And yet the breath of the Lord breathed on him once, and he ate grass like an ox for seven years. The breath of the Lord, and it's gone. Don't fear Nebuchadnezzar, and don't let Nebuchadnezzar keep you from believing the promise. When God is finished, he breathes, and it's gone. What abides forever? The word of the Lord abides forever. God says you're returning from exile. There is nothing that's going to stop you from returning to exile. God says he is going to sanctify and cleanse us and beautify us and present us spotless as a bride before her husband. What's going to stop him? Nothing. All flesh is as grass. As soon as the Lord breathes, they're all done. This is what Ahaz refused to believe. He looked at the glory of Damascus, the glory of Samaria, and then he saw the glory of Assyria, and he said, Nineveh, that's who I'm going to side up with. That's incredibly glorious. But what did I say about the Tower of Babel? Somebody has to make the bricks. And that's Judah at the bottom of the pile. This is, this is what God is Telling them, and God is encouraging them to believe his word. You are the people of God. You are made for so much more than making bricks for the Assyrians. Don't trust their glory. All flesh is as grass. Surely the people are as grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Look at what's being contrasted there in those verses. You have God, you have the Spirit, you have the word. And these three are one. The triune God, the triune covenant God. Who is going to stop the triune God from fulfilling his promise when all flesh is as grass? That's the second message. The third message. uh, O Zion, you who bring good tidings. The Hebrew is difficult because there is um, a preposition omitted. This is very common in poetry and you have to kind of fill it in. Literally, it says, you who bring good tidings, Zion. And the, I believe that in the context, for the sake of the style of Isaiah writing, that this would better be translated, you who call out, the calling one who brings good news to Zion. Zion is the city where David had his palace and where the temple was built. It was the seat of power. Now in exile, they've been abandoned. Now it's covered with thorns and thistles, and the jackals, Isaiah has a long description of what Zion looks like after the place has been destroyed and overthrown and abandoned. Now it's covered with wild grapes and thistles and thorns and wild creatures. Um, But now, here's this voice crying out to Zion. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. There's that word voice calling again. Lift out your crier. Lift up your crier. Cry out. Shout to Zion. Behold your God. He's coming. Verse number 10 is the message. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand. His arm shall rule for him. His reward is with him and his work before him. This is God being portrayed as the coming king. Now, if you're familiar with the Psalms, which the exiles would have had the Psalms in their heads, the Psalms speak about the the David coming. Uh, The heir to the throne of David is going to come. But the heir to the throne of David in the book of Psalms has the attributes of Jehovah God. In fact, sometimes the phrases are used interchangeably, which would have been a mystery not revealed until Christ came into the world, that the heir to the throne of David, the one who is coming to rule and to establish the kingdom on earth, to establish David's kingdom, is also Emmanuel, God with us. So here the Lord God coming with a strong hand, coming to set up and establish his kingdom, is also the one in verse 11 who will feed his flock like a shepherd. Shepherd is a common term for a king in the near Middle Eastern cultures. This king coming as a shepherd will feed and nourish tenderly his flock. He is gathering, defending, and preserving for himself a people. What's the ultimate fulfillment of this? Of course, the king did not come when Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. There was centuries of, of uh, Persian rule, then Greek rule, then uh, um, the Maccabean rule, uh, then finally Roman rule until the angels appeared to Joseph and Mary and said, you're going to conceive and you shall, be, uh, uh, you shall be with child of the Holy Spirit. And I will give him the throne of his father, David, the angel promised Jesus Christ came to establish his kingdom and he didn't fail. He did exactly what he came to do. When he went to the cross, that by the devil was considered his moment of weakness. Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, This is the hour of darkness. But just before he did that, he proclaimed, I am he. And everyone fell over backwards because they got a glimpse of his glory. And then they got up and arrested him again. Everything that he did up until then, he was the king coming in the guise of a serpent. Or it's not sorry, a serpent, coming in the guise of a servant. It was in God's decree that redemption would only come through the death of the Son of God, paying the atonement for sin, crushing the head of the serpent on the cross. Because the power of the serpent is in death and guilt, and hell, and shame. When sin is conquered, that power is taken away, and sin was conquered on the cross. So the biggest problem, the biggest kingdom that mankind struggles with is not Babylon, not Greece, not Rome, uh, not any of the kingdoms of this world. It's that we're in bondage to the kingdom of the devil. And Christ the King is plundering that kingdom. And he's drawing his people out through the proclamation of the gospel, the voice crying comfortably to Jerusalem, pulling us together, gathering us together in this amazing uh, technology that we have in the buildings all across the world, through the internet where the world's word is proclaimed. The people of God are gathering together because the Son of God is still gathering together his chosen communion. And here the glory of God is seen when the Holy Spirit descends in our hearts. And every man and woman and child that repents and believes the gospel is showing the glory of God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in their hearts. Until the day comes when all flesh will see it together, and every tear will be dried, and every, uh, every sorrow will be wiped away, and there will be no more curse, and the tabernacle of God will be with men and we will be his people, and he will be our God. That's the consummation of all things. And when we are in exile, when we struggle with our loneliness and our despair and our sorrows and our sadness and betrayals and uh, uh, the crushing blows that this world has, it's hard to believe that God has all of this under control. In fact... We get very used to saying things like, why isn't God paying attention to us? Where is God? Why isn't he hearing our prayers? Which is exactly what Isaiah is going to address in the next section of chapter 40, when he goes on telling us who God is and what he is going to do and Uh, how nothing can keep him from fulfilling his promises. So we're going to learn theology. We're going to learn redemption. We're going to learn how all of this points to Christ and who God is as we progress through this book. Um, And I can't think of a better thing to study at this Advent time uh, than this chapter we just looked at. So thank you all for joining us. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll take a few moments for any questions. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the redemption that you have promised. We thank you for the coming, conquering King, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, who we, uh, uh, we worship and we serve, uh, who has been given the heir, uh, the throne of his father David. We pray, Father, that you would uh, strengthen us, encourage us, lift us up, and cause us to walk in newness of life, reflecting the beauty and love and grace of the gospel to all around us.